Well, today we conclude our summer series. Feels like that went fast, doesn't it? Uh, the summer series titled Knowing God by Name. Uh, it's been a series where we're looking at the names of God in the Old Testament with this idea that um, sometimes, I don't know if you've had this experience, I know I have, sometimes my, uh, my investment in the church and, and time in here can have me think that learning about God is the point, while really the faith says that um, knowing God is the point, knowing the person. So we've been making this distinction throughout the series, knowing about God is religion, knowing God is life. And Jesus said this himself, so we're not pulling this out of thin air, right? Jesus said, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's, that's life. Life is knowing God. And uh, the names for God used in scripture reveal some aspect of who God is, and we've been working through these. And Jesus was very clear uh, in, in saying that he is in the business of making God known and that he keeps at that work by his spirit. Now, he said this also praying to God, I have made you known to them, O God, and will continue to make you known to them. Jesus is in the revelation business, making God known to us, and this is what we believe as Christians. And uh, for the last time, we've been kind of reviewing the foundational names of God in scripture, Lord, or the personal name of God, Yahweh, sometimes rendered Jehovah, uh, Lord, Adonai, uh, and God, Elohim, so ways to tell the difference between which name of God is used when you're reading your Bibles. And today's, today's name um, is, is not a compound name, as we've been looking at for the last few weeks, you know, one of these foundational names of God plus something that God does for people. It's not one of those names. Uh, it appears in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and initially it doesn't feel like a name of God. All the others were, were quite clear. But as Isaiah's message unfolds, it does become clear that this actually is a name of God. And then much later in the New Testament, it becomes explicitly clear that this is a name of God. And the name is Emmanuel. So let's read a couple passages from Isaiah. First, Isaiah 7, uh, verse 14 Here it is. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then over to Isaiah 9. This is where the name, it becomes clear that this is actually a name of God. Isaiah 9, 6 in the first part of verse 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and then government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And then finally, from the New Testament, uh, Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter one, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So just, uh, you know, it always takes a little context to to get started. When, uh, what was going on when Isaiah 
kind of delivered this message just very quickly. Uh, Isaiah delivered this message of a, of a promise, a promised sign that the virgin would conceive and give birth to a, a, a child and that child would be named Emmanuel. Isaiah delivered that promise to King Ahaz. Ahaz was the king of Judah. And at that time, Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, was, um, was under threat of being kind of run over by a couple other kings, the king of Aram and then the son of the king of Israel, then the northern kingdom in, in Israel. Ahaz was shaken along with all of Judah, so they were afraid. And through Isaiah, God said, hey, don't worry, you're not gonna be conquered. And then uh, he, he makes this great conclusion, one of these often quoted verses in the Bible, if you do not stand in your faith, you will not stand at all. So this whole, trust me, it's gonna be okay. And then he goes on to give a promised sign. There's, there's more to that story if you unpack it all, but he goes on to give a promised sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. So just in this passage, it's not really clear that this is a name of God. But then fast forward to chapter nine and you, the, 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 this future hope is detailed a little bit and we, and we get the second part of the passage for the morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this is more detail about the baby who would be called Emmanuel. He would also be called these other names and clearly that means that that baby would be God himself. So the Old Testament on its own uh, understands Emmanuel to be a name of God. Now there's, there's one more thing as we think about this name that's, that's really important. Um, for, for those of you who were here last week and heard that message or who maybe listened online, if, if you weren't, we'll, we'll, we'll still make the connection here. Uh, no problem. This, this is kind of like last week's scripture where Jeremiah said that the coming Messiah would actually be God himself. I don't know if you remember, remember that part of the story, but this was something that just completely uh, flabbergasted his Jewish audience. When, when Jeremiah said, hey, look, remember this, this promised one, that the coming king, that will be Yahweh Tzidkenu, or you know, uh, the Lord our righteousness. God himself will come to make us righteous by giving us his righteousness. So that was just mind-blowing for the, the Jewish audience that God himself would do that. They knew a Messiah was coming. They had no idea it would be Yahweh in person. Well, we've, we've got a little thing going on here this morning that's important. It's kind of like that. Here's the phrase, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You know, not only will the coming Messiah be God himself, Yahweh Sidkenu, like last week, but God will enter the world as a baby. A child is born. What? This is another one of those contextual moments. When the original audience heard this and wrapped their minds around it, it was inconceivable. Completely inconceivable. I mean, the child was born, the son was given. That, that, that's really important because it foreshadows the fact that Jesus would be fully human and fully God. Children are born, but the Son, the capital S Son now, was given. Right? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The child was born, the son was given, and the result was Emmanuel, God with us. That's, that's the, how those Old Testament and New Testament pieces fit together. But that's all the historical stuff. To understand the significance of this name for us right now, uh, you know, to understand that kind of significance, we have to think about the presence of God for a moment. So, so think with me here. Because why would the name Emmanuel, God with us, mean anything new unless we perceived that God was not with us? Or at least maybe we thought uh, or, or, or experienced God as absent. Why would this name have any new meaning, any, any different significance? Emmanuel, God with us, means that God is present with us. So, so what's the big deal with that? Well, this is kind of the whole thing. I mean, this is kind of the overarching story of the entire Bible. I mean, the, the story of the Bible is the story of human beings being separated from God by our sin and being separated from God's presence, and it's all about God's efforts to bridge that gap and ultimately to eliminate completely that separation that happened. And as the story goes, after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they no longer relished God's presence. In fact, they were terrified by God's presence, and they jumped in the bushes to hide. God's presence was a fearful thing to them because they knew they had done something wrong. And they hid themselves from God. It wasn't that God was absent. It's that they were hiding. And that's been going on ever since. And if you follow Jesus for any significant amount of time, you've identified this instinct in your own heart. I know you've got it because I've got it too. There's something in us still, every once in a while that creeps up, that wants to run and hide from God. That is there. And, and really the spiritual point is clear. It's been going on ever since sin broke our relationship with God. The New Testament summarizes it in this way. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people have loved darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. We avoid God because of our wrongdoing. And more specifically, we avoid God because we know we've done something wrong and don't want to step into the light to have it exposed. It's the spiritual reality going on in here. But living in that place has drastic consequences. That place of hiding in the darkness rather than in the light. Uh, Cain from Genesis chapter four learned of this right after he killed his brother Abel and was hiding from God. He said this, I will be hidden from your presence. It's all about the presence of God, right? Are, Are we living in the presence of God or are we hiding from the presence of God? I will be hidden from your presence and I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. You know, when we hide from God, when we're hidden from God's presence, we become restless and lose direction. And I suggest to you that all you have to do is scan our world for about 30 seconds and you will find multiple examples of this. 
When we hide from God, we become restless and lose direction. There's a reason for this. We were hardwired, created to live in God's presence. I mean, this is, this is in fact the very purpose of our lives according to the Bible. The Westminster Catechism famously puts it this way in question and answer number one. Question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I mean, how can we do that when we're running away from God and diving into the bushes in a spiritual sense now? right? I mean, that, that's a problem. That's a big problem. In fact, according to the Bible, that is the big problem. And the whole Bible unpacks God's plan to fix that problem. I mean, think of it. Early on, God told the Israelites to build the Ark of the Covenant. They had the tabernacle back then, kind of the portable, uh, the portable temple. And the Ark of the Covenant was understood to be the place where God lived. Not just a sign of God. This was where God was present, right on the top between the the cherubim, right? The presence of God. So when the ark was present with God's people, God was present with them. Moses would go in to talk with God as the story goes and, and he would come out with such an afterglow that the people couldn't handle it. They said, please stop, cover your face. We can't handle even the reflection of God's presence we're seeing on your face. So he put a veil over his face when he walked around the camp because the people couldn't handle it. See, the presence of God had become terrifying to them, not something in which they rejoiced and and delighted in. And then when Moses would go back in to talk to God, he'd take the veil off. What a strange thing, right? See, the Old Testament people were terrified of the presence of God. And it makes a great spiritual gut check for any of us in any particular moment. When you think about in your mind's eye stepping fully into the presence of God, what emotion do you experience? Is it (gasps) or (sighs) is it is it terror or is it Ha. Huh. Trust, release, joy. And this is, this is a real thing. And Jesus came to set us free spiritually. See, the Old Testament speaks of people standing in the presence of God, meaning that we're aware of God's presence. And, and we're also aware of our own shortcomings. And that, that creates this tension, which is so wonderfully summed up, the basic human dilemma, really, summed up in a single verse from Ezra. Here we are before you, O God, in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. What a strange irony. Here we are before you, yet we can't stand in your presence. Thus the tension, right? The thing that needs to be fixed. That's the big problem. We're guilty and because of it, we can't stand in God's presence and God's presence is life, right? Sin separates us from God because as the prophet Habakkuk says of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And yet, writes the psalmist, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins 
in the light of your presence. I mean, do we comprehend how far God bent down to accommodate us? This is stunning. Just stun- I mean, God loves human beings too much to allow us to remain as we are, stuck in our sin and separation from God. God desperately wants to fix that. I had a conversation with a friend up the street at their pool. They, uh, we have wonderful neighbors who have invited us to share their pool, come and use it whenever we'd like uh, throughout the summer. And I was chatting with the wife of that couple and somehow we got on to talking about John 3.16. And, and I, I shared my opinion that whenever we quote that verse, we should never separate it from John 3.17. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Don't forget 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I mean, I just, you, you might have this. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, as imperfect as any of us are, if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've had an experience like I had at Starbucks about, yeah, it's probably four or five years ago now. Uh, if, if you don't know me, I do a lot of my sermon writing at Starbucks. I should have bought stock a long time ago in Starbucks. They've got me. Uh, and I was at the Starbucks on 28th, kind of 28th Street and Beltline, that one down there. That was my favorite hangout for a while. And I was in the back corner, and I had my Bible out and was working on a sermon, and a, uh, a young woman and a young man, it kind of looked like a couple, I, if I had to guess, I'd guess 18 or 19, kind of ballpark. They came and sat down in the, in the seat right next to me. And I was, I was just sermonizing, just doing stuff, looking. And I can, I can hear them kind of snickering. I mean, and, and it was to the point where I kind of realized, like, they're, they're trying to, they're hazing me for having a Bible out in public, right? Um, and I kind of looked up, and uh, the girl actually said something very, it was just flat out rude and disrespectful. Uh, kind of like you blankety blank idiot, blah, 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 blah. Then they got up and walked away. So my, my first reaction was anger. I'm embarrassed to admit, right? Um, and then I just started praying. I was like, Lord, I've, I've learned this in life. You don't give people uh, power over you through their words, right? I choose not to give them that power. So then I'm praying through that whole thing, like, Lord, help, help these two. They don't, they're clueless about everything evidently <laughs> right um, but then it then it struck me that in the in the sheer holiness and righteousness of God I probably appear to him like that couple was to me uh, while while you were still in your sins Christ died for you right in that place where we were the greatest offense to God is when God came not just part way to us, not just most of the way to us, but he came all the way to us to get us back because he loves us too much. This has all led me to a place that whenever I hear kind of verbal speculation about Christianity being an exclusive, condemning kind of religion, I, I just... I just find myself praying these days. Like, I don't know what this person is reacting or responding to, but it certainly isn't the gospel. And the gospel is not just kind of good news. 
It's really good news. Because when we are the place of being the greatest offense to God, God came all the way to us to save us through Jesus, not to condemn us, but to save us, to save the world through him. To save us from what? Let me tell you, it's not the cartoon hell with the little red guy with a pitchfork. I mean, the answer is easy. To save us from an eternity of relational separation from God, living apart from God rather than living fully with God, living forever with the restlessness, the, 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 the lack of an adequate level of purpose and direction commensurate with being images created, uh, our creatures created in the image of God. I mean, it says, says 2 Thessalonians, that the biblical definition of hell is being shut out from the presence of the Lord. It's all about God's presence. There's, there's a whole other conversation here that I, I didn't have time to unpack in, in this message, but will at some point, about willful sin. So as followers of Jesus, you know, we're, we're mindful uh, of the fact that we're free. We've been cleansed. And we're on this journey of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. We can't do anything to make ourselves more presentable to God. He's given us the righteousness of Jesus. And we're on this growth uh, curve to become more and more like Jesus, to become the kingdom people we will be forever. That's why willful sin is so hard, right? King David wrote of this in Psalm 19. Lord, uh, keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Because when we do something we know to be wrong, we choose to dive in the bushes spiritually and hide from God again. And that grates against the whole momentum of salvation going on in the world and in your life by the Holy Spirit. And you've you've felt that. I know that you know that if you're a Christ follower. But that's that's the spiritual reality of what's going on. But that's, that's another message. We can't fix the separation problem on our own. I mean, here's the problem again. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. I mean, we are lost and hopeless if left to our own devices. And the presence of God is a huge thing. Life is found in God's presence. And we can't stand in God's presence on our own because of our guilt. But then, to us a child was born, and to us a son was given. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He'll fix the problem. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. A child was born. A son was given. And the result was Emmanuel, God with us. And his name is Jesus. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And and this Jesus is the fulfillment, the embodiment, the presence of all of the names of God at, at which we've looked throughout the summer. Elohim, the strong creator. 
El Elyon, the Most High God. El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. Jehovah or Yahweh, the actual name of God, God's personal name, the relational God. Adonai, the God who rules. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. Jehovah Tzaba, the Lord our warrior. Jehovah Rohi, the Lord my shepherd. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner. Jehovah Mekadesh the Lord who sanctifies, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, and Emmanuel, God with us. You know, in Jesus, and now by the Holy Spirit, God is present with us, Emmanuel, in all of these ways. Peace, shepherd, warrior, provider, healer, banner, sanctifier, the one who makes us righteous. Wow! This is amazing. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things because the Son is the image of the invisible God. Or or writes uh, the author of Hebrews, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. It's that simple. And he really came to accomplish exactly what he said he wanted to accomplish. You know, Philip had been one of Jesus' disciples for almost three years when he made this request of Jesus. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. To which Jesus responded, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And this was, this was Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, who was making good on his promise to come to us himself for the purpose of making us righteous again and thus eliminating our separation from God. This is the heart of the gospel. Right? This, this is the main thing, God coming to us to give us his righteousness so that we can again live in his presence as we were designed to live, both glorifying God and enjoying him forever. I mean, when Jesus died, the temple of the curtain was torn in two, the scripture tells us, from top to bottom. Very symbolically, God did this so that we would get the message. There's no longer a barrier between you and my presence. There no longer needs to be a barrier between you and my presence because my son has died and offers my righteousness to you. Wow. And we're made righteous again given the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus. And it's all a gift. You know, and, and in Jesus, and now by the Holy Spirit, God continues as Emmanuel, God with us. Not an idea, not a religious idea, a person who is with us right now. Not in a few minutes, not a couple years ago when I felt warm and fuzzy on the inside. God is present with us now. Friends, there is a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Knowing about God is religion. Knowing God is life. If we want to know God, we look at Jesus, Emmanuel, and we remember what Jesus has done for us. And that's what we do every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's an amazing thing. Uh, Because what, what we celebrate physically in these elements 
is the new covenant. You know, in the old covenant, God said, I, I will keep all of my promises to you if you live in faithfulness to me. Now, there was some foreshadowing of what was to come, but that, that was the deal back then. And in very simple terms, in the new covenant, what God has done is continue to uphold his end of the old covenant. I will keep my promises to you if you are faithful to me. But then in Jesus, he came over to our side of the covenant and kept the covenant perfectly on our behalf. So that in the gospel, in the story of the Bible, what we have is God fulfilling his end of the deal perfectly and in Jesus coming over to our side and fulfilling our end of the deal perfectly on our behalf. I don't know how you assess things, but that sounds like a really good deal. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Jesus sneaking over to our side and fulfilling perfectly uh, the covenant on our behalf and then giving us that gift. That's why we come uh, in remembrance, communion, and hope. And we come remembering that our Lord Jesus was sent by the Father into the world to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, keeping our end of the deal perfectly. Right? He did that even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Because that gift has been given, we are welcomed back into the presence of God. And we come to have communion with Jesus as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, believing that, that this bread and this cup is a foretaste of what we will experience in heaven. And as we celebrate now, we celebrate in God's presence, just as we will forever. So we, have come, we come to have communion with God in that same way. And we come in tremendous hope, believing that there is a day where there will be no more crying or mourning or death, for the old things will have passed away and God will have made everything new. We come in remembrance and communion and hope this morning as we celebrate. Pray with me. God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that while we were most offensive to you, you came to us. You did not abandon us. You didn't turn on us. Uh, Anger did not win the day. But instead, your love overruled everything else in all of creation. And you came to us in the person of Jesus. God, as we celebrate this supper this morning, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us. Help us receive it as you intend. You did this, and you told us to continue celebrating this meal, and we believe that you did that for a reason. So we pray that you will nourish us, that you will fill us, that you will call us back to you, that you'll empower us, both to trust you and to share the name of Jesus with others through this celebration. God, thank you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.